you wanted a simple way to summarize the major difference between Roman Catholicism and Protestant Christianity, you could do no better than to go to the doctrine of justification and what Roman Catholics believe about what it means to be justified versus what Protestants mean by justification. The question that has to be asked that justification answers is how can sinful people be accepted by a holy God? How can people who have broken the commandments of God be welcomed into the family of that God against whom they have sinned? That's the question. Roman Catholic theology answers that question by teaching That justification means to be cleansed from your sins. And as the official Roman Catholic Catechism puts it, to have communicated to you the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ and through baptism. Now there are two problems, biblically, with that Roman Catholic understanding of justification. Protestants have pointed them out. And have, well, protested them for 500 years now. One, justification does not involve being cleansed personally from your sin. Justification is not the work of renovation within a person's life. Rather, justification changes your position before God. Now certainly, salvation includes more than justification... Salvation does involve being changed inside, but what the Bible means by justification is a declaration of God that changes your status before God, not internally changing your nature. So it is a change of your position. The second problem with the Roman Catholic understanding of this doctrine is that the righteousness of God does not come through faith and baptism. Rather, the righteousness that is credited to the person who believes comes through faith and faith alone. Not faith plus things that you yourself do, whether that's baptism or something else. So with regard to both the nature of justification, what it actually is, and the means whereby you experience justification, how it comes... Protestants and Roman Catholics disagree. They are divided over what the Bible has to teach on this important subject. And this disagreement is a watershed disagreement. It is a disagreement that separates a right understanding of what the Bible teaches of how we come to know God versus teaching that if you follow it will lead you ultimately away from God. Heaven and hell hangs upon this disagreement. There are some things that you can be wrong about and it won't necessarily keep you from being right with God. Uh, God's given us the Bible and so we want to understand everything in the Bible as accurately as we can. But we do that recognizing that what Peter said of Paul's writings in 2 Peter 3.16 is certainly true from our vantage point as well. Peter said, he writes some things that are hard to understand. And so I take comfort in that. 
If Peter found some things Paul said hard to understand, I shouldn't be surprised when that happens to me. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul makes a reference without explanation of baptism for the dead. That's hard to understand. I don't know exactly what he means by that, and good people disagree over that. But you know what? If you don't understand that exactly, if you get that wrong, that doesn't necessarily keep you from being reconciled to God. There's some things you can misunderstand and yet be right on the main things and be reconciled to God. But if you're wrong on the main things, then you'll miss God. If you're wrong on justification, on how a person becomes justified, what that entails, well, then you can find yourself going down a pathway that doesn't lead you to God, it leads you away from God. This is precisely the conviction that the 16th century Protestant reformers came to as they began to read the Bible for themselves. They saw this so clearly and they were so clear in the understanding of how important it was that they were willing to see the church divided over it. They were willing themselves to live under excommunication and anathema. Some of them were willing to seal the testimony of this conviction with their own blood, having their lives taken from them because of their belief. They understood the Bible to teach that God justifies sinners not on the basis of what sinners do, but by grace alone. And that that grace comes to us in Jesus Christ alone, not Christ plus something else. And it is received by us through faith alone, not faith plus our own works. Martin Luther, the great 16th century reformer, called the Bible's teaching of justification the article on which the church stands or falls. In other words, he argued that if a church gets this right, it will stand. If a church doesn't get this right, it doesn't matter what it gets right. It will fall. John Calvin, the other great reformer of the 16th century, called justification the principle by which religion is supported. By that he means true religion, Christianity. He went on to say, whenever the knowledge of justification is taken away, the glory of Christ is extinguished. Religion is abolished. The church destroyed. And the hope of salvation Utterly overthrown. It's pretty serious in the minds of those reformers. If they're right, then we need to take seriously what the Bible has to say about this doctrine. And yet today, many, dare I say most people, disagree with what Luther and Calvin and others in the 16th century came to see so clearly and stake their lives on. Three years ago, Ligonier Ministries commissioned a study of what people believe about Christian teaching. And in that study, it was determined that 77% of Americans believe that you have to do some things. You have to do good in order for God to accept you. People must contribute their own effort for personal salvation. That was the question that was asked. 77% said, yeah, that's right. Over half of the people surveyed believed that their good deeds helped them, quote, earn a spot in heaven. 
Well, that way of thinking about how to get right with God has far more in common with Roman Catholicism than it does with the historic Protestant evangelical reformed understanding of justification. What's even more disturbing in that study that Ligonier commissioned is that 36% of evangelical Christians agreed with this statement. By the good deeds that I do, I partly contribute to earning my place in heaven. 36%, one-third. If we were to consider ourselves average evangelicals, that means that one out of three in this room have a sense that you've got to contribute something in order for God to accept you into His presence. Well, the Bible teaches clearly against this. The Bible teaches that salvation comes to us by God's grace and grace alone. And at the heart of what the Bible teaches about salvation is this doctrine of justification. That God declares sinners righteous. That He forgives their sins by grace alone as they have faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. That's the good news of the Scripture. The verb justify is found in the New Testament 39 times. 29 of them are are places where Paul himself is using this word. Justification for Paul is the heart of Christianity. It's the essence of the gospel, the good news that saves sinners. It is because of Jesus' death, guilty sinners who justly deserve God's wrath come to a new relationship with God through faith. Faith in Christ. As we've seen in recent studies and our working our way through the letter to the church at Rome, this is the burden of the Apostle Paul in writing this letter. The, the book of Romans has front and center the grace of God in the good news of salvation for sinners. The grace of God in the gospel. At the heart of that gracious gospel is this doctrine of justification. From chapter 3, verse 20 of Romans, through the end of chapter 5, Paul unpacks this doctrine. He sets it before us, both in terms of its foundation, how it is accomplished, as well as the way that it comes to sinners, how we receive it. And he spells out implications of it as well. This morning, we want to continue our study of justification as we move into the fourth chapter of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 4 verses 1 through 8 is going to be our text for the study today. It's found on page 941 if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you. And we're going to see in this passage how Paul starts teasing out implications of this doctrine of justification. So follow along in Romans chapter 4 Verses 1 through 8, as I read this passage aloud for us. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. 
Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. What Paul is teaching us is that God justifies ungodly people completely by grace only through faith. He is so fanatical about this that he says it in different ways in chapters 3, 4, and 5 so that it's inescapable. He's determined that we not misunderstand this cardinal doctrine that no matter whatever else we might miss, we will not miss this. At the end of chapter 3, he has established the point that justification comes only through faith in Christ. And that's true for Jews. It's true for Gentiles. For the circumcised as well as the uncircumcised. In other words, the only way anybody gets into God's good favor is by grace through faith. In the verses before us this morning, Paul further buttresses this claim, this argument. And he does it in three ways. First, by calling upon us to consider Abraham. And then secondly, by contrasting for us wages and gifts. And then thirdly, calling on us to consider David and what David's testimony was. So let's follow his reasoning this morning by looking at verses 1, 2, and 3 when he says, consider Abraham. Think about Abraham. Well, Abraham was a classic example for the point he's making. I mean, Abraham is the father of the Jewish people, right? He's our forefather according to the flesh. He's the hero of the Jews. What does Abraham teach us about justification? Well, Paul makes the point, Abraham's justified before God the same way that Gentiles are. Now, this would have been a very significant point for his Jewish readers. What did Abraham gain? What's found in Abraham? Verse 2, he was not justified by works. If he had been justified by works, Paul says, the point being, of course he was not. Because he has nothing to boast in. Rather, how was Abraham justified? Verse 3 says, the scripture teaches us it was by faith. The scripture says, he's quoting Genesis 15 here. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, this would have been a great challenge for unbelieving Jewish people in the first century. Because Abraham was the hero. He's the father of their nation. There's nobody greater than Abraham. If Abraham is right with God, certainly it's because Abraham is such a great person we can see how the Jews understood Abraham by reading some of the rabbinic writings about Abraham that were current in Paul's day Uh, there was one commentary by the rabbis on Genesis chapter 26 verse 5 where God is speaking to Abraham's son Isaac and that verse says this God says I will bless you because of your father Abraham and the fact that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Well, you know what the rabbinic commentary said about this? It explained this verse as teaching Abraham our father having performed the whole law before it was written. Abraham did everything. That's why God blessed him. That's why God accepted him. Because he kept God's commandments completely. There was another book that was written about 150 years before Paul wrote Romans. And it was current in Paul's day. 
And it said this about Abraham. Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Abraham was righteous by his own works. There was another book that was written that said Abraham never did anything that he needed to repent of. Kind of sounds like a president, right? Nothing wrong that he's ever done in his life. So if anybody's going to get in on God's blessing and acceptance, it would be Abraham because he's such a great man, right? Paul says, no. (laughs) Wrong. Abraham was justified the same way that Gentiles are. Abraham believed God. It was faith in Abraham that caused him to be able to access the righteousness of God credited to him. Paul has just argued in verses 27 through 31 in chapter 3 that God's way of justifying sinners eliminates all boasting because it's completely by grace. And nobody can say, I did better than this person. If you would do what I did, then God would accept you the way that He accepts me. And because it is by grace, it can only be received through faith. And He calls upon Abraham Not as an exception to this teaching, but as an illustration of it. And this would have caused the the Jews of his days to kind of sit back and, and think, wait a minute, Abraham? Abraham was justified before God, not because he was so great, not because he was righteous in his in his own life, but through faith. Paul sets up a hypothetical case in verse two. He asks, What if? If Abraham Indeed, had done something to make himself right with God. If he had done it by his own works, then he would have something to boast about. But even then, he says, his boasting would be meaningless before God. He can't boast before God. Why not? Because Abraham, like everybody else, has to stand before God with his hand over his mouth, offering no argument, no defense for his life. This is what Paul says in verse 19 of chapter 3. Remember, as he's bringing to a close his, the first point of his argument about the gospel from chapter 1, verse 18, he brings it to a close in verse 19 of chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. And he says that the, the law is so strict, it is so spiritual, it is so high, it is so holy, that nobody, nobody can look at the law of God honestly and say, yeah, I measure up. God, I did my best. I'm not so bad. No, in verse 19, he says all of this, the law was given to teach us our sinfulness. Why? Verse 19 to chapter 3, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God, including Abraham. Now, this would have been offensive to first century Jews. Abraham having his mouth stopped before God. Yes, that's what Paul's saying. In verse 3 of chapter 4, he quotes Genesis 15, 6, which clearly says it, that Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. Now, Paul's going to explain this more fully in verses 9 through 12, which God willing, we'll look at in a future study, where he sets up something of a timeline and he shows that before Abraham was circumcised, before he'd done anything, that we remember him for in terms of his good works, God justified him. God came to him and forgave him and counted him righteous. 
What's the point? Paul says, Abraham supports my thesis. That justification comes by God's grace alone received through faith alone for sinners. That's the only way people get right with God. The point he's making is this. If not even Abraham, the great patriarch of the Jewish people, could be made right by his own efforts, then nobody could ever be made right with God through their own efforts. Paul's Jewish readers would have understood this instantly. That that was his point. Those who know some things about Abraham or read about Abraham in the Old Testament and see his place of prominence will also come to recognize the significance of Paul using him as an illustration. God chose Abraham. I mean, God entered into a covenant with Abraham. God prospered Abraham, made him great. And yet even Abraham could only be made right with God by grace through on the basis of by grace on the basis through the faith that he had in God's promise. So there's huge implications of this for every one of us here. The way that Abraham became right with God is the way that you and I can become right with God too. It's the only way. If you're right with God, it's because he's been gracious to you and you have taken him at his word and you have trusted his son, the Lord Jesus. There's no other way for you to be accepted by God than trusting Jesus Christ alone as Lord. So the question, the big question for every one of us today is, are you trusting Jesus Christ as Lord? Is Christ your Lord? Do you have faith in Christ? If you do, brother, sister, rejoice. God accepts you. And He accepts you for Christ's sake. And you are as accepted today as you will ever be because you're accepted not on the basis of your performance, you're accepted on the basis of the performance of Jesus who's done it all. If you can't say that, if you're not trusting Jesus, friend, I'm delighted you're here. But take God at His word. Believe the Bible. Believe what God says. And be accepted by Him today by trusting Christ. Where you are, as you are. Turn from your sin. Bow to Christ in your heart. And call Him Lord. Depend upon Him. Look to Him. Quit trusting in yourself. And look for God to accept you for Jesus' sake. Well, after considering Abraham, Paul next makes a contrast between wages and gifts. He does this in verses 4 and 5. He's further explaining his point about justification by showing the antithesis between working for a salary and being given a gift. Work earns wages. When you take a job and you are employed, you expect to be paid for your work. Verse 4, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. When you receive your paycheck at the end of the week or the month, you don't go around and say, man, look what my boss gave me. Isn't this incredible? It's a gift. No, you, you say, look at what I earned. When you get something because you've worked for it, it doesn't come to you gratuitously. It comes to you because you've earned it. But notice the contrast. The contrast in verse 5 is that 
Righteousness is received by faith, not working. So to the one who does not work, contrast, antithesis, Paul setting up, but believes in him, rather than working, believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Do you see the contrast? It's between working and believing. And only those who do not work but believe will be counted righteous. Suppose that that, uh, you bid on a job for a customer and, and you agree to trim five trees in his yard and plant two flower beds for him and to pressure wash his driveway and you agree to do that for $500. And so you spend all day and you do all the work, you get it all done and at the end of the day he gives you $500. You don't walk around saying, man, look at this gift. Now you talk about the work you did because you earned that. It was your sweat that got you that money. But if you go home and you open your mail and you find a $500 check from an uncle, he says, hey man, I hope you're having a good day. Wanted to give this to you. You don't take that check around and say, look what I did. I opened the letter. I went to the mailbox, right? It's a gift. It's a gift. This is Paul's point. This is why he's making the contrast. We receive God's acceptance as a gift. We don't earn it. Nothing we can do to attain it. Only by believing, trusting, resting in Christ will we be justified. This is what makes justification so scandalous. It is scandalous. Do you see how Paul puts it in verse 5? Who was it that Abraham believed? God who justifies the ungodly. The ungodly? That's not typically the way we think today. This would have offended unbelieving Jews beyond what we can imagine. Paul is calling Abraham ungodly. Abraham is justified the same way all other ungodly people are. I mean, doesn't this offend the way people think today? Right? It's not the way we think. It's not the way people think about God. God helps those who help themselves. Right? Help themselves. You're telling me ungodly people God helps? you do your part God will do his if you try your best God knows you're not perfect but if you try your best he's going to take that into an account Paul says no the only kind of people God justifies are ungodly if that offends you And you're not willing to see yourself by nature in that category of being an ungodly person. Then I just want to plead with you today to go back and read what God requires. Just meditate on the Ten Commandments. I mean, if you're here this morning thinking that you're basically a good person and that you've done enough that you think God's going to to let you in and accept you because you're more good than bad, I just want to plead with you. Consider the Ten Commandments. You haven't kept them. 
I'd be willing to bet you can't even name them. And yet we have this mentality that, you know, I'm not all that bad. No, the only people God justifies are ungodly people. It's scandalous. But it's hopeful. It's hopeful. Because if you know yourself to be ungodly, there's good news for you. That's the kind of people God justifies. And all your ungodly friends and relatives, guess what? They're candidates for justification. Because that's whom God justifies. You remember that time that Jesus went to a, a big party? Luke chapter 5 records it. It was a man named Levi's house. And there were a lot of tax collectors and, and unseemly people there. People of ill repute. And the Pharisees saw what was going on. And so they said, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And you remember what Jesus said to them in response? Those who are well don't have any need of a physician. He said, I have come to call sinners, not the righteous, to repentance. Do you see the point he's making? It's not people that are healthy that need a doctor. It's not people who think they're healthy that will seek a doctor. I mean, you could be dying of cancer right now and ignore it, deny it, be ignorant of it, and you're not going to be making an appointment tomorrow morning to see a doctor. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous. What does he mean by that? Who are these people? He's not suggesting that there's anybody righteous in and of himself. He's saying it's people who think they're righteous. People who think they're okay. People who refuse to acknowledge that by nature they're ungodly. He said, I didn't come to call those kind of people. Why? Because those kind of people don't think they need any help. I came to call sinners. God justifies the ungodly. Jesus died for the ungodly. Jesus calls the ungodly. And right now, in the study of this passage, through this message, Jesus is calling ungodly people to turn from their sin and to trust Him as Lord and be accepted by God. And if you'll take God at His word and believe this, if you will bow to Jesus as Lord, if you will hear Him calling you through His Word and say, yes, Lord, I repent of my sin. I trust You. God will accept you. God will justify you. You'll be right with Him. Not because of anything you've done. Not because of who you are. But because He's the God who justifies the ungodly. He did it for Abraham. He's done it for many of us in this room. And He will do it for you. Well, having considered the example of Abraham, having contrasted wages versus gifts, the last thing Paul does in our passage is consider David. He wants to take up another Old Testament saint, another Old Testament hero. He does this in verses 6-8. through eight. David sings of the blessings of justification in Psalm Number 32, that's what Paul's quoting here. And you'll notice that the section that Paul quotes highlight two specific aspects 
of the blessing of justification. In verse 6, this blessing of God counts righteousness to you. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So, it's apart from works. God counts righteousness to you. The righteousness that He requires in His law, God counts that to you. He puts that to your benefit. And He does it apart from any works. And then verses 7 and 8. We have the second aspect of the blessing of justification. The blessing of having your sin forgiven. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So we see that David in the Old Testament, along with Abraham, are part of Paul's argument. They they support his case. That justification comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because David sings about it. David understands the only people who are counted righteous by God are people who have sins. Lawless deeds that need to be covered. That need to be removed. God justifies ungodly people. And He does it out of sheer grace that can only be received through faith. Paul is not going to let us misunderstand this. And I want to do my best to to try to highlight the way Paul is doing this. Because your eternal destiny hangs on this. If you miss this, you miss God. You can be religious. You can do a thousand good things that will receive the applaud of people. But if you miss this, you won't be accepted by God. This is why the Protestant Reformation happened in the 16th century. This is why the Roman Catholic Church split. This is why those of us in that stream of the Protestant Reformed Evangelical understanding of justification refuse to budge one inch on this teaching. Because what is at stake is heaven and hell. This is why we've tried to be precise. In our teaching of this, listen to what the Westminster Assembly's shorter catechism says about it. It's printed on the front of your bulletin. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace, whereby he pardons our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. That's what Paul's teaching. Or the way our own church's confession, the The second London Baptist Confession of 1689 was very careful to articulate this precisely. Listen to what it says. Those God effectually calls, He also justifies. He does this not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and accounting and accepting them as righteous. He does this for Christ's sake alone and not for anything produced in them or done 
by them. These are just summaries of what Paul's teaching in our text. Paul uses a word in these first eight verses of Romans 4 five times that he uses a total of 11 times in this whole chapter. You see it in verse 3, 4, 5, 6, and 8. It's the word that comes across to us in English as count. Count. It is an accounting term. It comes from the world of accounting. It means to reckon. It means to credit. Or in the language of older English, it means to impute. It's because of this word that we disagree with our Roman Catholic friends about how righteousness comes to us in the act of justification. They teach God infuses righteousness into us like a blood transfusion. We understand by this word that God reckons righteousness to us. He credits our account with righteousness. He imputes righteousness to us. To be justified is to be declared righteous in God's sight. It's His judgment. And that judgment is based on the reality that through faith, Christ's righteousness that He actually earned is afforded to us. It is credited or imputed to our account. Our text makes this clear. It teaches us clearly that there's both a a negative and a positive aspect to God's judgment God's imputation in justification. Or we might put it like this, that in justification, there's both imputation and non-imputation. God credits us with something and He dismisses something from our account. We see that when a man repents and trusts Jesus, God credits him with perfect righteousness. And He stops counting his sin Against him. Do you see this? Look in verse 3. Abraham had righteousness credited to him when he believed. And then in verse 5, Paul universalizes that thought. And he says that in the same way that God justified Abraham, he will justify anyone who has faith in Jesus. He puts it like this. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Then in verse 6. He cites David, where David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. To be justified by God is positively to have the righteousness that Jesus earned credited to your account. So, as you trust Jesus, God takes the righteousness that Jesus earned in His obedient life, in His submissive death on the cross, and He puts it on your account. And so, when you go to God, You worship God, you live before God, you pray to God. God looks at you and He sees the righteousness of His Son. Spotless. Perfect. Completely fulfilling the law that requires righteousness. It's amazing. But there's a negative aspect of justification as well. The non-imputation. God justifies ungodly people and when He does that, He Positively grants them, he imputes to them the righteousness of Jesus, but negatively, he non imputes, he withdraws from them the charges of their own sin. He erases their sin from their record. He removes sinners from the danger of God's wrath and punishment. 
So when you trust Jesus, you're removed from that state of condemnation before God. This is what Paul means when he cites Psalm 32 in our text, verses 7 and 8, where David says, Your lawless deeds are forgiven. Your sins are covered. The Lord will not count your sin against you. In later chapters, Paul brings all this together like in chapter 5 of Romans, verses 1 and 2. Just listen to it. He says, Therefore, wrapping this up, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's the negative. Hostility cease. Enmity removed. Sin no longer imputed. Peace with God. And then he goes on in that same passage. You have this through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's the positive. Rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Who gets to experience the glory of God? Only righteous people. And yet that's our hope. How can we have an honest hope of entering into the glory of our great God? Because He has justified us and granted us righteousness in Christ. Brothers and sisters, this, this is an amazing truth. It's, it's true of every one of us right now as we trust Christ. God looks upon us for the sake of Jesus and sees us righteous. He looks upon us and for the sake of Jesus has our sin completely removed from us. In Christ, we're completely forgiven. Completely forgiven. All of our sins taken away, charged to Jesus. We no longer bear them. Just think about this. All of your hateful, inconsiderate words completely removed. Jesus paid for them. All of your selfish, thoughtless attitudes completely removed. All of your lusts. All of those inordinate desires that you have within removed. Forgiven. All of the good things, the right things that you know you ought to pursue, but you don't. Forgiven. Paid for by Jesus. If we believe this, it will set us free. It will cause your conscience to be reinvigorated. Not so that you can run and sin more. No, so that you will look to Jesus and be stunned that you have been loved at such a cost. That God would do this for you. And that in Jesus, you are completely Credited forever with righteousness. You stand forgiven forever. I, I tell you, when I think of this, I, I don't get Christians who don't sing. I just don't get it. I, I don't get Christians who think that worship is boring. Christians who, who can be satisfied to not spend time in God's Word. I know all those things are temptations and we all fall prey to them at times. But brothers and sisters, when we do, you know what the antidote is? It's coming back to reconsider what God has done for us in Christ. 
is to be amazed all over again that my righteousness, when I look at my own life and measure my life by God's decrees, His law, I just see failure and failure and failure. But to know that God says my righteousness is secure in heaven. Jesus earned it. And so God looks at me and he sees me, for Christ's sake, righteous. I see my sin and I grieve over my sin and to think, man, that sin's so wicked, it needs to be punished. And I'm tempted to try to punish myself and I think, ah, because I've done this and I think this way, not what I ought to be. To take God at his word and say, yeah, all that's true, but you know what else is true? Jesus died for every last one of them. It's forget. You see that? It sets you free. It gives you strength to live with new resolve to honor and glorify your great God who at such a great cost has accomplished your salvation. Friend, if you're not trusting Christ, don't you want that? Don't you want to be able to pillow your head at night knowing that God looks upon you as completely righteous for Christ's sake. And God does not hold your sin against you anymore. That freedom, that reality, it can be yours. Right now, it can be yours. Not by doing anything. Not by making any promises, turning over a new leaf but by bowing to Jesus Christ as Lord and trusting Him. Trust Him. And the God who justifies the ungodly will justify you. Let's pray. Our Father, we are amazed. We're amazed at what Your Word says about the freeness of Your grace. The reality of having our sins forgiven and having righteousness imputed to us. The very righteousness that Jesus earned. Oh, help us to believe it. Help your children to leave today reinvigorated with new zeal, with new hope, with new joy in knowing that Jesus Christ has lived and has died and by His life and His death has set us free and rendered us acceptable to you, our great God. Open the eyes of the blind today and reveal Christ. Magnify your grace. Justify the ungodly here in this room today. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.